right now on Matter of Fact. Hi there. The time has finally come. Can I have you please roll up your sleeve? America plans to vaccinate millions of the country's heroic healthcare workers. The question is how? It has to be done perfectly. We go inside a major hospital's urgent preparations to give out the COVID-19 vaccine. Then, is your social media feed telling you the truth? We need to reimagine our relationship with facts. When it comes to politics. The phony fake ballots. And the vaccine. How do you know what to believe? Plus, does the church have a higher calling to help more than just its congregation? Be God's hands and feet in the community. How one church is helping its neighbors keep the faith when it comes to redeveloping one of America's historic cities and a deadly link between COVID and the air you breathe. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. The COVID-19 pandemic is worse than ever and the country keeps breaking records. Hundreds of thousands of people have died. Thousands are getting sick with each passing day. And hospitals are running out of ICU beds again. The virus has killed hundreds of healthcare workers. The toll on our frontline caregivers goes well beyond just the physical. These photos are only a snapshot of what it's like staring down another surge of the pandemic. Bob Owen and Lisa Krantz of the San Antonio Express News captured these images during two overnight shifts at the COVID-19 intensive care unit at Northeast Baptist Hospital. Bob Owen describes the experience. The first time I went in, I was pretty shocked. And um, when you see that door open and you see everyone in PPE and you see the patient either in a wheelchair or on a gurney, you think, okay, should I back up? The doctors and the nurses, they, they just go like clockwork and they try to comfort the patients as much as possible. There was a patient who uh, the healthcare workers uh, thought would not make it through the night and the clergy called the family and I think they were there for maybe 20 minutes. But this is the, the last moment that the family had with their loved one. The healthcare workers, they're faced with ungodly situations, and uh, I just respect everything that they do nowadays. The UK is already giving out its first shots of the vaccine, and the US says that about 40 million doses of vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna will be available within days. The first shots will go to our 18 million healthcare workers. They'll require two doses. Honor Health, which operates six hospitals in Maricopa County, Arizona, is responsible for vaccinating healthcare workers and at-risk first responders in the northeastern part of that county. Dr. Stephanie Jackson is in charge of the operation. She is senior vice president and chief clinical value officer for that organization. Dr. Stephanie Jackson, what a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. How do you feel about this responsibility that lies now on your shoulders and, and other leaders in the medical community? Yeah, I mean, this is the absolute most important project I've ever worked on probably in my entire career. Um, and to be able to deliver this vaccine to our healthcare team that's been working so hard on the front lines of COVID. It's just going to be the best holiday gift that we could give our healthcare workers. So one of the reasons we're having these, these practice dry runs is because it has to be 
done perfectly. What exactly are you practicing? The logistics of this vaccine are very complicated. The initial uh, vaccine from Pfizer is the one that we think we will uh, get here at Honor Health, and it has to be kept frozen at minus 70 degrees. So um, there's a, a short window um, from the time that you uh, thaw the vaccine and reconstitute it uh, to deliver it into the arm of the patient. And then you have to make sure that that patient comes back uh, 21 days later to get the second shot. And you can't mix the brands, can't start out with a dose of Pfizer and then get a dose of Moderna later. So um, it is very complicated. Just the the act of getting that many people through in a matter of hours to use up the vaccine will be technically challenging. Is there enough of the vaccine for everybody? No, there's not. And I don't think there will be for some time. And so what we'll be doing is having a prioritization algorithm uh, using a computer, a, a cell phone app, and healthcare workers will answer some questions about what type of work they do in healthcare. And then those uh, healthcare workers that are working on the front line in the emergency rooms, in the intensive care units, in the places where they are interacting, you know, daily with, with COVID patients, those are the highest priority to get the vaccine. The first dose, they say, gives 50% coverage or, or protection, and the second dose brings that to 95%. Is there a different strategy around distribution of the second dose so that you don't have people who somehow got the first one but drop off before they get the second one? I think that's going to be a really critical piece. And one of the reasons we want people to enroll in our, our we call it our Twistle app, uh, is to uh, make sure that they get reminders to come in for that second dose because we want them to have the full efficacy of the vaccine. Is the, is the vaccine free to you? Do you have to pay for it? The vaccine is free and we're not charging for the vaccine. We will charge an administration fee and it's been set by um, CMS as about uh, $45. And those, those charges will be billed to um, insurance companies. And in the event that someone doesn't have insurance, then it'll be waived. When should the public start thinking about when they could have access to the vaccine? There's a plan using uh, CVS and Walgreens type pharmacy chains to go out and vaccinate the persons that are living in extended care facilities or group homes. And that will be more of a mobile program. Then in Arizona, we are then going to essential workers, such as teachers, grocery stores, prisons, all of those places. Only after those phases are completed will it be a more of a general distribution that you, you know, just go to your doctor or go to your pharmacy to uh, get a dose. And so it's going to be a while uh, until the general public is, is uh, vaccinated. Dr. Stephanie Jackson, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Solidarity. Coming up, an event to brighten even the darkest day of the year. But first, why it's getting harder to stop misinformation in its tracks. If something is false, you call it false and you think that's gonna solve it, but that's not working. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. In just a few weeks, voters in Georgia will decide the direction of the U.S. Senate. And just like in the general election, voters are left on their own to sift through social media feeds of misinformation. 
But the Georgia runoffs are not the latest battleground for mis- and disinformation. While hospitals run drills on how to distribute the vaccine, people are debating whether or not to even get it. The head of the world's largest humanitarian network, International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, is urging governments to fight fake news about the vaccine. So how can people know fact from fiction? Whitney Phillips is assistant professor at Syracuse University. She teaches media literacy, myths and disinformation, and political communication. Professor Phillips, nice to have you. Let's start with the phrases disinformation and misinformation. You've been studying this kind of thing for quite a while. And what did you start seeing, let's say, in 2016 in that election? The thing about 2016 that was most striking and that I studied most directly was issues of amplification. So whether something was misinformation, so false or misleading information inadvertently spread, or disinformation, false and misleading information deliberately, purposefully spread, when journalists or everyday people would respond to it, um, even to debunk it, that would amplify the mis and disinformation. And it would make it, it would give it sort of a longer tail, essentially. It would allow it to travel more places to more audiences, to more unpredictable effects. Do you think uh, social media platforms, let's pick Facebook, for example, could do a better job? I mean, is the technology there to actually pluck out what is disinformation, what is false, what is a false narrative intentionally, and shut it down. So you look at social media platforms, especially Facebook, there are absolutely enormous logistic challenges and labor challenges to moderating those kinds of platforms. So I'm not saying that moderation is as simple as flipping a switch. It's not that. But when you see persistently over years the same kinds of problematic, harmful, hateful, dehumanizing content allowed, and not just allowed, but incentivized to spread, recommended to other users, it, it, it be really begins to look like that content is, if not embraced and enjoyed by Facebook, then tolerated. I'm beginning to come to the realization that facts just don't matter to some people. And uh, what do you recommend? What do you think is the right way to to navigate that? Well, I think that, so if 2016 was the election of amplification, um, 2020 has proven itself to be an election of the limitations of facts, that facts are absolutely critical, but facts and facts alone are not enough to correct some of the worst, most insidious, most harmful um, information that is spreading around online. And you can look at uh, you know, far-right conspiracy theories like QAnon or the deep state or any other kinds of uh, COVID denialism, um, those theories, even after all of the fact-checking, all of the debunking, all of the careful responses by journalists who are doing their best, those theories have not just not gone away, they've actually become more prevalent. So we need to essentially relearn our relationship or reimagine our relationship with facts. How do you reimagine a relationship with facts? I mean, I don't even know what that means. So most people think that when they Google things online and when they start seeing results, that that's reflective of objective reality, but that's not. That's reflective of what the algorithms are feeding people. And so if you're a QAnon believer or you're QAnon curious, the algorithm kind of can tell that based on the things you search and what you do. So it's gonna continue giving you things that corroborate what you're already looking to to find. Whitney Phillips, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Coming up, a dirty problem making the pandemic worse.
but first, spreading the gospel outside of church. We want people to know that they're not forgotten. Should churches have an obligation to create jobs and upward mobility for the community? For the last two years, our series, Russell Rising, has followed a billion-dollar revitalization project in the heart of Louisville, Kentucky's black community, the West End. It started with ambitious goals to redevelop the historic neighborhood without displacing the people who've always lived there. Last week, we showed you how some in the community see development and others see displacement. We're going to give you hope by building a fancy building, and we're going to hope that you leave. This week, we look at the role churches play in driving change in their communities. Our hope is in God. Amen. Glory, glory. This is St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Louisville's West End. Reverend James Seta Ferguson is senior pastor. Did you have a vision for what you wanted the relationship between the church and the community to look like when you first came to St. Peter's? What I had hoped was that we would serve uh, all people and be God's hands and feet in the community. Reverend Ferguson's church is in a storefront around the corner from its original home of more than 100 years, closed since 2014. At that time, the surrounding neighborhood had about 9,000 residents, almost 60% of them living in poverty. There was a lot of deterioration, no jobs. We were lacking uh, stores. We only had one grocery store to serve 9,000 residents. Many of them lived right across from the church in Louisville's largest public housing project, Beecher Terrace. It was showing its age and had become unsafe. In 2014, there were a series of killings, seven or eight people killed in a two-week span. That uh, seemed to create enough tension and enough uh, attention uh, to the need to do something. That something was to tear Beecher Terrace down and disperse its 572 households across the city. A lot of our membership moved and they now are in places in Jefferson County that make it difficult for them to attend church. Today, 640 new apartments are going up where Beecher once stood. Half of them have been set aside for former residents with no increase in rent. But only 40% have expressed interest in coming back. They're not believing that things are different. Who wants to come back to the same old, same old, right? You want to come back believing that there is something there for you. St. Peter's wants to provide that something at its church and at a new retail and office complex it's building across from the new apartments. All of a sudden, it's a reality. Oh, Lord. There'll be restaurants, a bookstore, a preschool, a health clinic, and more. And I'm looking for us to be a bustling community again. 
what's the church's role in the economic development? We're projected to bring about $25 million back into the community and over 100 jobs. And most of the tenants are minority owned. Back at its new building, the church is counting on the rental revenue to fund its work in the community. We have the food pantry where we distribute about 160,000 pounds of food annually to over 13,000 people. We do recovery for four to 500 men and women each week. We have a remote learning site for young people uh, so that they can come and do their online learning here with a professional teacher. We want people to know that uh, they're not forgotten. While development on the West End is backed by government and private funds, it's community buy-in and participation that will ultimately determine its success. I've been the pastor here since 2006, and I've never seen this amount of enthusiasm. And I think there is a sense of hope that this time, this time something is different. If you want to watch this story or any of the other stories about Louisville, Kentucky and the West End, go to matteroffact.tv and search Russell Rising. Next, why the government passed on a chance to pump the brakes on something making the pandemic worse. Plus, a gift from the sky so rare it hasn't been seen in nearly 900 years. Now to a segment we like to call, we're paying attention even if you're too busy. The Trump administration declined to set tougher standards on industrial soot emissions, a deadly air pollutant, despite evidence linking dirty air to respiratory illnesses, including increased COVID-19 death rates. Soot can enter the lungs and the bloodstream and cause inflammation that can lead to asthma, heart attacks, and other illnesses. And it can come from a variety of sources like smokestacks and power plants, cars and trucks, incinerators, burning wood. Public health experts and environmental justice advocates slam the decision to not tighten regulations, saying that low income and minority communities will be exposed to more bad air. That's because industrial pollution, like soot, is heavily concentrated in those communities. The Environmental Protection Agency is legally required to review the latest science and update soot standards every five years. The EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler, a former coal lobbyist, said there wasn't enough scientific evidence to merit a change. Next, a present from the planets, just in time for Christmas. Less than a month away from seeing something big, not just the end of 2020, yay, but an event called the Great Conjunction. On the winter solstice, December 21st, Jupiter and Saturn, the two biggest planets in the solar system, will appear very close together when viewed from Earth, creating a bright star-like event in the southern sky. They haven't been this close since the year 1226. If you don't see it on the 21st, that's okay. This planetary duo will be moving slowly across the sky until Christmas Eve. In fact, many believe this interstellar event could be similar to the fabled Star of Bethlehem or the Christmas star from the Nativity Story. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week. 
Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.